Oh. What time is it? Who woke me up? Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the inaugural Nordic Insights Podcast. I'm your host, Fast Big Dog. Joining me today is not just a guest, but the guest, Mr. John Weslin. Uh, JR is not only a Nordic skier, but he just finished representing the United States of America at the UCI Mountain Bike World Cups in Snowshoe, West Virginia, and Mont Saint Anne in Quebec, Canada. So this is an incredibly impressive accomplishment for an athlete at any stage of the career. Uh, but JR, let's just dive right in. Your your road here was probably a bit different than that of most of your competitors. So tell us about your path here. Yeah. Uh, no, thanks for having me on this. I'm stoked. Um, yeah, I, I definitely did not start uh, cycling at a high level um, <clears throat> until about four or five years ago. But um, I started, I would say, with just general sports. I started um, being a competitor through soccer, hockey, uh, motorcycle racing, um, skateboarding. And I kind of checked all the boxes. I was, I think, uh, the, the real, um, you know, jack-of-all-trades master of none. Um, and I was just super mediocre, <laughs> like kind of the, the, the best of the worst at every sport I did. Like I was good in the sense of like locally, um, but then nationally and internationally, I was never never a standout. So I, I felt like I was always an athlete, but never uh, did anything long enough to really um, go after any massive goals or anything. And um, in my, I think I was, man, it had to have been 10th grade, maybe ninth grade. I, um, I ran cross country and really got hooked on endurance force just through running. And then I, um, I, I really wanted to race uh, motocross professionally when I got older at that time. And I knew in the winter I had to stay fit and, you know, snowboarding and skateboarding, there's an indoor skate park right by me and it just wasn't cutting it. Like it was good for the skills. And, um, I think it kept my mind sharp, but as far as fitness goes, it didn't offer a whole lot. So I started cross country skiing in uh, 10th grade. And from there, I just really fell in love with skiing. And like to this day, I call myself a skier, uh, more than a mountain biker, but, um, yeah, I went to junior nationals my senior year. Um, yeah, went to college at St. Scholastica, cross-country skied there. Again, like nothing crazy results-wise. Um, was always pretty good, but nothing nothing fantastic. And then I think just due to the way ski training is, um, just having to be really good at a lot of things and having a really good aerobic motor. Um, I, and I think a lot of it, too, is just training in – really bad conditions a lot um you just kind of get used to having to get through a lot of crappy scenarios um it's not like you know swimming not to say swimming is easy by any means but the you know an indoor pool the the water is always pretty calm and it's it's a very similar feel every day where in cross-country skiing you just have so many variables whether you're trail running or cycling or roller skiing or whatever you're doing in the off season so i felt like that gave me a huge upper hand um as far as becoming you know, a mountain biker. And, you know, from there, I, I moved out to Southern California to pursue my career in uh, training motorcycle racers in 2015. And there's no cross-country skiing there. So I just had to bike year-round. And uh, before I knew it, I was, um, yeah, I was doing pretty well at the local races and having fun and then just started taking it 
as some would say, maybe a little too serious. <laughs> was your was your wife one of those people who said that? Yes, yes. I mean, I think everybody around me knows that. Uh, you know, I'm a bit I'm a bit nutty. Um, I think I think it helps me become a better coach, um, especially when I don't have like crazy athletes to coach like they're more level-headed and don't overthink everything so i think it's a definitely a positive for me with with my athletes but overall yeah i went i went pretty basically once covid hit i went pretty nuts on training and and uh i just kind of deep down i always knew um what i was capable of um and i just really wanted to pursue something at a high level before i was too old um i'm only 32 but in the endurance sports world i'm definitely at the back end, not the front end. Yeah, so you, you touched on a couple of very interesting things there. So number one, um, you mentioned running, and that kind of was one of the first things that you did. So as you well know, but for the benefit of the listeners, I was down in Snowshoe uh, staying with you and uh, two, of the other, two of the other boys, um, Carter Hall and uh, Evan Arthur, and both of whom uh, have connections with skiing, um, Evan was a good high school skier and went on to be a very, very good collegiate runner. So the original um, kind of genesis from this, uh, this podcast was that this would be an incredible story of three people uh, started in Nordic skiing, ended up at the very top level. So that, it's, it's super interesting that you had that running, uh, running tie-in as well. Um, I think you touched on a lot of really interesting stuff. So having competed at least at a fairly high level uh, in all those sports, some of which it may have been a few, few years ago. Let's not put a number on it, but uh, certainly as a coach, you're still actively involved, I know, with some of the best motocross guys in the world. What would you say the biggest difference is between um, both training and racing? I know that's a little bit different. So let's just talk about Nordic ski uh, training and then uh, the other sports. So... Uh, Moto, running, mountain biking, you know, kind of putting all those in a big basket. What, what's the difference between Nordic skiing and, and all the other ones? Um, I think one of the biggest differences is everybody thinks their sport's the hardest. Um, <laughs> and just across the board, I think everybody just lives in the bubble and thinks that, like, whatever they're doing is, is so much harder. Um, and not to, like, bash any sport. It's just the reality of it. So I think – my favorite part of, of kind of how I've gone about everything is I've seen a lot of sports at a high level. And so you kind of realize that every sport is insanely hard at the highest level. And there are definitely differences. Um, in the training world, I think cross country skiing, um, there's a lot of emphasis on just being a good athlete, which I think bodes well, if you ever want to split off of that. Um, and so you see it a lot like ultra running. There's tons of super high level, um, X cross country skiers that are great at, at that. Um, same with cycling, like Sepp Kuz, uh, he came from a, you know, cross country ski background in Durango. And there's just a lot of athletes that come from the ski world where the, I feel like a lot of the other sports like cycling specifically, um, it's pretty hard to branch out and be good at much else. If you're a really good cyclist, just because, um, it's not a very dynamic, um, sport it doesn't take you know you can bring the best cyclists into a gym and they might not be able to do more than you know a handful of pull-ups it's just not a very athletic sport in the sense of you know 
having you have tons of skill sets outside of it. So I think that's the biggest thing is like skiing really, I think out of all the sports I've worked with, which lots of action sports, like you said, motorcycle racing, um, skiing really is like the ultimate athlete to me. Um, and motocross is a lot like that. I think the biggest difference with motocross is you're dealing with a lot more injuries. Like I'll have guys that have a rod, you know, from their neck to their lower back and then the rod in their femur and then a rod down their tib fib. So it's like basically the whole left side of their body is a rod and you have to be able to train them, um, through that and, and, you know, for the rest of their lives. So, you know, they're not going to be doing four hour trail runs like a skier might. But, um, yeah, I think, I think motocross training is actually very similar to ski training because you just have to be really good at everything. You have to be strong. You have to be cardio fit. Um, and for reference, like how cardio fit you have to be, I actually had a, uh, one of my top motocross racers did a 5k today on a track. And, um, let me bring it up to make sure I'm not fibbing here. Um, I screenshotted it and he ran a 1623. Um, so, you know, the top moto guys are super fit, just like a skier or a cyclist or any of that. So yeah, I think, I think they're more similar than they're further apart, but, um, just the dynamic aspect of being a skier, man, are you good at a lot of things, uh, you know, to be at a good level. Yeah, so I'm glad you brought that up. So let's come back to that moto thing because I'd like to drill down on that a little bit more because without a doubt, motocross, I think out of all the sports that we've discussed and certainly all the sports that you listed in your um, kind of development process, what got you here, motocross is the one I'm guessing that my listeners are the least familiar with. But before we move on to that, I think your point about skiers being incredibly well-rounded is a really, really good one in that um, run rabbit run, super famous, um, hundred mile trail run was just here. Adam Loomis, uh, was one of the top guys, um, ended up not having a great race, but certainly racing very, very well at the very highest level. Um, David Norris, you know, won the Berkey last year and then went on, I pretty sure won the Cirque series overall. You know, he's won, uh, just the brutal, brutal, um, uh, Mount Marathon, uh, up in uh, Alaska. So um, uh, Sam Hendry's another one, um, you know, racing shorter uh, trail runs, but super gnarly, like the mountain trail run series in Europe. So yeah, um, just off the top of my head, a couple uh, great, and you mentioned uh, mountain bike racing as well. And certainly there've been some cyclocross uh, stars that have come from uh, Nordic skiing as well. So um, I think that's a that's a great point, and it's an interesting. You guys, again, what's kind of started this whole series is the fact that all three of you had really strong skiing routes, and then in a relatively short period of time, I mean, all of you have been racing essentially under four years, and you're you know at the uh, UCI Mountain Bike World Cup, which is just incredible. So let's let's move on to um, what moto and Nordic skiing have in common. Are there more similarities? You touched on fitness a little bit. Uh, I know just from having spoken with you, um, a lot of the training that you do, I think listeners will be incredibly surprised, A, at how fit the athletes are, but B, like you have them doing workouts. I mean, you're one of the top coaches and you have the top guys. And some of the training programs that you showed me, obviously track time aside, are remarkably similar to some Nordic ski programs. Can So just talk about like, how do you balance those two, you know, time on the track something obviously very different than Nordic skiing, but then how are, how are those two sports more similar than I think most people realize? 
Yeah, I. So when I started uh, cross country skiing, like I said, when I was younger in high school, I was I was um, I was pretty into moto. Like I, you know, it's it's kind of crazy, but a lot of the guys I grew up racing with um, in around, you know, became Hall of Famers in the sport. So I, I didn't really know it at the time, but I was I was definitely surrounded by some really high level uh, motocross racers and. Also, at the same time, like some of my friends, as I was becoming a little bit better at skiing and realizing how to train and realizing, you know, what intervals were, like it's kind of the first aha moment, you know, when you're 15, 16 and you learn what intervals are. And then, you know, three weeks later, you run your fastest 5K. You're like, oh, man, do, do these things work? <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so I was helping out just for fun. Um, never expected this to be a career or anything, but I was helping out local pros from the age of like 17 and then through college I was writing out training plans for some local pros all through college so I've kind of been doing this a little bit longer not at a super high level but I've been doing this a little bit longer um, than my age might show so I've always known that it works for moto like training like a skier and so I basically when I came in to started training some of the top guys I would literally train them like skiers um, almost across the board with the biggest differences being no roller skiing, obviously, but they would do a lot of skier, the concept two skier, and uh, a lot of rowing as well on the concept two rower. And then really the biggest thing is just building a huge aerobic motor because when you ride a motorcycle, um, you're basically at threshold every single time you're riding. Uh, threshold lactate, but then your heart rate is actually even higher because you, you have about 10 to 15 uh, heartbeats that are adrenaline-based. So say your threshold, you know, while you're running is 170 heart rate on a motorcycle, you're going to be like 185, call it. And say your max running uh, is 200 on a motorcycle, you might hit 210. Um, and I've seen it happen time and time again where people are just absolutely mind blown, like how much harder it is to hold their motorcycle heart rate on a bicycle or on running or whatever they're doing. And so it's impossible unless you're you know, getting chased by a bear or something, then maybe you'll have enough adrenaline. But, uh, yeah, so the, the training itself is so similar. And I think that's why I became good at a pretty quick rate at training the top moto guys is because I basically took cross-country ski methodology as in, you know, very easy aerobic days, very hard anaerobic days, and I just implemented it into their schedule. And, yeah, before I knew it, it was, I mean, the proof was in the pudding. Like, it was pretty obvious how much fitter these guys were getting and, um, you know, stronger and, but they weren't putting on a ton of mass. Like it was kind of the nineties mindset, eighties mindset where if you lift weights, you're going to put on a ton of weight in the motocross world. And I feel like I kind of helped debunk that a little, which was really nice because these guys need to be, you know, really strong to do what they do. Yeah. You know, I've seen heart rate profiles or heart rate files, I guess, from races and I mean you're right people are just pinned from the gun I mean it, it's it's pretty interesting um, it's really cool again all those other ones it certainly makes sense I mean given the nature of the training that we do sure it makes sense that cyclists can or uh, skiers are good runners skiers are good trail runners I mean that was an easy one but you know motocross is not something that immediately jumps to mind so that's one of the things that I think makes this such an interesting interview in your perspective because I'm sure a lot of people, anyone who's ridden dirt bikes probably knows it's hard, but there's probably a lot of Nordic nerds out there going, wow, who would have thought it? So, um, Yeah, well, even in action sports, like in general, I've worked with some high-level skateboarders and high-level uh, action sports athletes, and it, it's you can really like take cross-country skiing and tweak it, whether it's higher volume, lower volume, more intensity, less intensity, whatever, 
and you can kind of tweak it and just make a really good all around athlete because it basically uses, you know, every muscle in your body and the fitter you are cardio wise, you know, the better you are at just about anything nowadays. Um, I've worked with, um, you know, formula one, Le Mans, uh, car racers, and even they are doing a lot of ski, you know, ski backed workouts. So it's, it really kind of goes across all modalities of, of sport in this day and age is as good as everybody's getting. Yeah. And it's interesting you say that too. Uh, uh, as you well know, I'm a surfer and John, John Florence is a previous world champion. So his brother, Nate Florence has a podcast. He's Nate's primarily a, uh, big wave surfer. He has a podcast with Koa Rothman, another big wave surfer, and this is kind of coming off their uh, downtime, sort of their off season. And you can kind of get waves all over the world, but certainly in Hawaii. So they they were doing a couple podcasts and what to do when for a surfer when there aren't waves. And lo and behold, uh, the concept to ski erg was uh, what all those guys recommend and use on a regular basis. And they look pretty good on it too. It was, it was pretty funny. So. Yeah, yeah. No, I have my guys go through the ringer on the skier. Like usually, um, I, I I kick their butt pretty good on on a couple skier workouts to kind of you almost have to uh, like gain the respect that your program's hard enough. Right. So, you know, within a short amount of time, they're they're definitely not stoked to get on the skier. Right, right. So um, going back to Nordic skiing here, um, you know, skiers can vary somewhat substantially in size. Um, you know, even in the World Cup level. But it seems like this is very rarely the case, certainly in high-level mountain bike racing. And despite all this, uh, you made it to the World Cup, tipping the scales at a beefy 180 pounds. And, uh, you know, as you alluded to earlier, you, you did that all well, you know, well, well into your 30s, which is making this whole accomplishment even that much more impressive. How do you think you've been able to compete with guys um, not only younger than you, but um, a fair amount smaller in a sport where age and weight play such a major role in success. Yeah, I, I skied, I skied pretty heavy most of the time. I was like one ninety five, call it. Um, so one eighty for me is pretty lean. Um, and you know, it, in the on the World Cup, you know, there's a hundred guys, call it. I, I was for sure the heaviest. There was definitely nobody heavier than me in the last two races. But with that being said, um, there are a lot of perks also on being a little bigger, especially with like raw power, um, flatter courses, even some of the downhills, like some of the not so technical downhills, but like the Leadville style downhills where you're like bombing a fire road. Mm -hmm. Um, I definitely can tell weight helps me a lot. So yeah, like on the climbs, I'm definitely at a disadvantage in a lot of ways, but, um, I just, I really think my ski background and just putting in so many hours, aerobic hours, uh, has really helped me because this bike season, especially if you're going to live in California, is so damn long. I mean, mm-hmm. you start the mountain bike races start in January and they really don't end ever. <laughs> it's like the season starts in January and then you can race through, I don't know, there's, there's a race halloween weekend and there i think there's a couple after that but you basically can race 11 years or sorry 11 months out of the year Mm -hmm. no problem um and so due to having such a massive aerobic base skiing i don't think a lot of cyclists uh have the same aerobic base just because you 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 can get away skiing you can't really get away with training mediocre like if you want to be good at skiing 
there's there's kind of like a two plus two equals four equation to be good at skiing and that starts with having a huge aerobic base and all the other stuff we know but in cycling it doesn't work that way like you can kind of train idiotic for lack, lack of better terms in in you're fine and you're fast you can obviously be way better but you know most people especially in socal where you can train year round um they're kind of fast 12 months out of the year like they don't really there's not a whole lot of peaking going on or like managing a season it's just like they're always fast and in cycling you can get away with that so um having that aerobic base you know i'm i feel like i'm able to handle a ton of intensity a ton of racing this year i did you know over 30 races um and yeah it's just a lot of factors i think led to me being um you know decent at mountain biking and one of them obviously i race motorcycles from the age of um, you know, super young age up until college. So it's having that background and just being comfortable on two wheels on technical or downhill stuff that helps a lot as well. So it's kind of the, the mash between cross country skiing and, and racing motocross. And I think mountain biking kind of is the perfect fit. Sure. What would you say is the biggest thing that you learned at the, uh, mountain bike world cups these past two weekends? Um, just, just how incredible, um, these top guys can go downhill, like the uphill, you know, luckily I, I've ridden with a lot of world tour guys. Um, you know, I've done intensity with some world tour guys. I kind of know the raw power they put out and, and just how crazy, you know, seven Watts per kilo for, for 10 plus minutes feels. Um, it's, it's pretty incredible, but the downhill skills that these top mountain bikers have are, out of this world. I mean, it's, um, it's a whole different ball game and, and just how technical the terrain was. Uh, I was definitely out of my element kind of from start to finish, but, um, it's, it's really cool just to see the level that mountain biking's at. I think 10 plus years ago, you know, the world cup, you couldn't even get down those, those downhills on the bikes and the equipment that was available. And now, you know, we're riding stuff that probably was considered downhill terrain, you know, 10 years ago. Oh yeah, absolutely. That tech section in Snowshoe, I mean, that was, that was no joke. Anyone could do a quick YouTube search and you can see, you know, world champion or previous world champion, Kate Courtney going down hard. Um, you know, there in training, you and I were talking best riders in the world were going down and, uh, that's, uh, on a, uh, a cross country course. It was, it was, it was amazing. It was amazing. Yeah. Um, well, it was like when I made it down one of the last times in training, um, and then Nino Schurter behind me crashed really hard. You know, I was like, okay, this is not easy. Uh, you know, when that guy's, when that guy's crashing on the downhills, you know, you know, it's tough. Yeah. When a nine time world champions on the struggle bus a little bit, that's a good indication that maybe you're riding some pretty gnarly tech sections. Yeah, exactly. So uh, prior to starting your own coaching company, uh, you coached at Lopet, uh, Lopet Nordic Racing. And in fact, there's a rumor, uh, that you might even be making a guest appearance in West Yellowstone this November. Um, and you touched on this earlier, so I'd like to expand on this. You know, there's obviously a lot more money, and I mean, to be perfectly blunt, I think probably a lot more interest in motocross. Um, and your involvement at such a high level there is giving you the opportunity to work with uh, the performance team at Red Bull, and um, you know, you're collaborating with some of the top sports scientists, exercise physiologists, nutritionists. Um, kind of given this really unique set of skills and background, as well as the very specific knowledge 
and information that you have about Nordic skiing. What's the biggest piece of advice that you'd give junior skiers, um, in particular those who, you know, maybe aren't all that satisfied with their results, but it may not seem like it right now, but in the grand scheme of things, I mean, shit, you just started the World Cup at 32. Um, these uh, younger athletes are, you know, 14, 15, 16. You know, I help out and coach some of them, and I see frustration in a lot of both young men and women, you know, that they aren't going faster. So given your perspective on a, you know, very, very successful career, but also exposure in lots of different sports, what would you recommend to uh, juniors all over the country, you know, who maybe aren't going as fast as they want to right now? In particular, since you mentioned that you, you know, sound like you were pretty crappy in high school too. Yeah, yeah. I was, well, like for uh, Minnesota standards, I was, I was very mediocre to go skiing in college. I was, I was, well, back then we did mix between classic and skate, but I was eighth in the, I think I was eighth in the skate or eighth in the classic and 12th in the other one, whichever the other one was. But anyways, I was one of those kids like that you're mentioning. I, I wanted to get better. I started so late and uh, luckily coming from a hockey background, like you were able to pick up skate skiing fairly easy and the whole balance aspect. But I wanted to get so much better. Like the advice I'd give to myself or give to young kids that want to be good is just you have to, and this is every sport I think in this day and age is everybody, especially in the U S is so results based. Um, they don't really care if they know how to ski, they just want to win. And so I think the best advice is, is really learn how to ski, learn how to uh, have the correct body position, you know, whether you're V1ing, V2ing, open field, have the correct body position, um, you know, just a very solid base of technique will get you a lot further in five years than, um, you know, just smashing up a hill, looking like the Tasmanian devil and, um, you know, getting to the top and, and burning every single match you've ever had. So I, I think that's kind of where it starts is, is really learning how to ski and learning how to ski well and maybe slowing things down a little um, on intensity days just to make sure you're doing everything properly because what you, from a muscle memory standpoint, what you do at 14 has a huge effect on how you're going to ski at 25. Um, and so if you want to make the Olympics or you want to make the next step, um, you, you really have to start at the basics. And even if you're you know, 25, you can still undo some things. It just, it takes a lot of discipline. And for me personally, I was, like I said, a very mediocre skier, but I, when I moved to Park City um, in 2020 and I started skiing and I hadn't skied for like five or six years and I started skiing again, the one thing that was awesome was like, it was like, I never stopped skiing, you know, right away. It just felt natural, but it was the first time ever as a skier because I wasn't competing that I could just focus on my technique. And it was such a fun time because I didn't have a heart rate monitor on. I, I wasn't really worried about how much time I was skiing. I was just able to go ski and try to be super efficient and, and just enjoy all of it. And I think, you know, at a young age, especially most skiers come from a running background. So we're always worried about, you know, mile splits or, or whatever it is in training well in skiing i think i think you can get a lot further uh, just being a very efficient skier than than anything else and you know you see it on the world cup you, the guys that look like they're trying um not so hard are always the fastest guys and that's just kind of proof in the pudding of what they're working on and it's usually of course they're doing intervals and hard sessions but they're definitely making sure their their techniques dialed 
Yeah, that, yeah, that's a great point. And let's go to the opposite end of the spectrum there. Um, and to be perfectly honest, probably the bulk of the listeners, uh, your company also offers training plans and personalized coaching for you know what I think most of the listeners are going to consider more conventional endurance athletes, you know, mountain bikers, road cyclists, Nordic skiers. So what type of recommendations do you have for the master skier? You know, the wave five, four, three, you know, really six, seven, doesn't matter. You know, the Berkey wave skier looking, you know, maybe they were a good college runner or maybe they got to skiing late. So they didn't have the technical background that you're describing. They arrived late for whatever reason, fell in love with it for all the reasons we've just discussed. But now they're trying to have fun with it. They've got a lot of other demands on their time, but they're still competitive. They want to move up a wave or two. What do you recommend for people, you know, on the, let's call it the back nine of their career, but, you know, getting into the sport without necessarily the technical background of uh, high school coaching, college skiing, uh, all of those uh, tremendous, tremendous assets. Yeah, a lot, and a lot of the skiers too, I feel like that are in that category, kind of come from the, the like, maybe the Ironman background. Mm-hmm. Um, you see a lot of that, and I think, Going off of that, you know, this is obviously not everybody, but I think with the masters, a lot of times, um, they try too hard in a volume aspect. They really try to put in just tons and tons of time. Mm -hmm. And, uh, again, it's not quality though. Like it's not focused on technique or a certain, um, speed they're, they're training at or any of that. It's just like going and skiing for hours and hours, which you need days like that. But I think the biggest thing with, with masters across the board is, is the same thing as juniors is like really making sure, you know, when you're gliding, you're on a flat ski. And when you're, you know, when you're V wanting up a hill, you're not crossing your pole across your chest and and all of that stuff, just being very fluid is going to go much further than putting in the extra, you know, four hour OD ski on Sunday. Um, And I think for the Berkey specifically, like that's, a big thing I work on with my master athletes is just, Hey, it's awesome. You're able to get your intervals in, but like, did you actually do them, (laughs) you know, as a, as a efficient, competent skier, or did you just do them, you know, as hard as you could and and didn't think a whole lot outside of that? Cause if you come from the running or the cycling background, um, you know, we all know you don't have to have perfect technique to be fast. That's just kind of, kind of obvious, but in skiing, you know, it's, it's kind of a 50, 50 pull. So the, the fitness aspect, even at the master level, is is only half the half the piece of the pie. You got to really make sure your technique's solid too. Yeah, you know, in that sense, it reminds me a lot of swimming, and that it really, you know, it's nice to be super fit. But if you're super fit and super super sloppy, whether you're skiing or swimming, I mean, you're dead in the water. So yeah, you're, well, you're, like swimming, it's the same. It's a, swimming and skiing are very similar. Where. Um, yeah, the harder you try in swimming, the slower you go. That's, <laughs> so that's right. it's it's like you know you slow it down a little, and you and you make sure every push on your ski is powerful, and every pull plan is meaningful, and um, you definitely are going faster at a lot less effort. Right, right. And you know, one of the things that I really like talking with you too is you've got such a good perspective in that, unlike Nordic skiing that doesn't really have that much money involved with it, you know, even at the World Cup level. Um, people still take it super seriously. And, you know, I can't tell you the number of, you know, high school kids, college kids, you know, master blasters who are just crushed, like inconsolable after a bad race, you know, stomping around, you know, the, the wax cabin. Um, 
having been involved at a, or being involved at a, at a very high level where there is a lot more money involved, like tens of millions of dollars and stuff, I think that helps give you a little bit better perspective. So what advice do you have for skiers at all stages in their career? When they have a bad race or, you know, a couple bad races, just when they hit a rough patch in training and racing. Yeah. I, I was just talking to Paul Schomer about this. It's, um, like I, I really do believe, especially in skiing, just because it's so. I mean, the races are so intense, and um, you know, if you're just a little bit off, uh, whether it's mentally or physically or whatever it is, you know, we've all tried to race with a cold, and most of us know how that goes. It's 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 a big, you know, shift in how well you could do versus how well you did do, and I think just being able to, you know, realize what a good, like being a, being a realistic, um, competitor is, is your best asset as a skier because it's all for all sports, but especially in skiing, it is so, it's so the, the jumps from being okay. You know, if you look at it like the Berkey way, the, the jump from being a wave three, good skier to being a wave one, good skier to being an elite wave, good skier, it's huge jumps. It's not, the sport's not big enough where you have like tens of thousands of people in each of these categories, you know, it's, it's a very small niche sport. So the jumps are very, very big on the ladder. And, and so you, I think having very realistic goals, like you always should push to be your best. Um, but also too, like, you know, I've been out of the ski world for so long, I couldn't go do the Berkey this year and be like, Hey, I'm going to, you know, be a top 10 skier. Like it's just unrealistic. But I see a lot of that in skiing where, you know, they just expect to, I call it hope doping. Like they just hope that they somehow, <laughs> somehow figure it out overnight, you know, like, I Oh wow. I just, I just went from like being this, you know, good skier to being, you know, an Olympic champion. Like it just doesn't happen like that. So mm-hmm. I think having just realistic goals and knowing that, um, you know, it's just a ski race. You can't, you can only do your best and whatever that result is, is what it is. That's great advice. What do you think is the biggest mistake that most Nordic skiers make in their training? Oof, that's tough. Um, I, again, I think it's hard because I'm a, I'm, I'm kind of uh, battling myself when I say this, but I think we're so, I think endurance sports across the board, we're so focused on volume, um, whether it's, you know, making sure you hit 20 hours a week or two hour long ski on Saturday or whatever it is and not focused on things that can have a bigger impact on how, how we perform, whether it's how you fuel. Um, you know, I always tell a lot of the top skiers, like if you're not getting a massage often, uh, you're never performing at your best because your muscles hate you. So just making sure you're doing all the little things to be better are probably going to have a bigger impact than, you know, doing 13 hours instead of 12 hours of training during the week. Okay. Um, that is also great advice. And um, I'm a little surprised because, again, you and I talked about this a lot when we were down in West Virginia. And I thought you were going to go with nutrition. I don't disagree with what you've said, but let's talk a little bit more about nutrition. And interestingly enough, I just read a interview this morning with um, multi-time world champion Ironman athlete, um, uh, Jan uh, Fredino, and he just retired after World Champs, and uh, after crushing everybody. Yeah, yeah, and it was crazy. He <sighs> was talking about um, trying to take down 
130 grams of carbs per hour on the bike. And then when he gets to the run, he dial, dial, quote unquote, dials it down to 80 grams an hour. And, you know, you and I have talked about this. Uh, you had a really, really strong race in Leadville, which is, you know, uh, pretty extended. I guess it was a, right around a seven-hour effort. So kind of dovetailing on this past question, you know, I know a lot of the people listening to this are going to be doing ski marathons, you know, maybe not some of the high school, college athletes, but certainly uh, the elite guys get out there for a bit, and masters in particular, um, you know, they could be looking at three, four, five-hour Berkeys where I think fueling, and certainly on the, on the World Cup, any of the 50Ks or any of the longer uh, distance events, um, fueling obviously, you know, is a incredibly important part of this. And I know in, in the past you've been a little critical, uh, or you feel like it's a, a area of opportunity for skiers. So talk a little bit about what you think is sort of, because this is evolving so rapidly. What's conventional, conventional wisdom right now? Let's talk about mountain biking. And then what recommendations would you make for skiers racing more than, let's say, two hours? Yeah, no, I'm definitely harsh on skiers with this just because um, it's it's free speed. It's very, very easy to do for most people. And um, I feel like just the ski culture as a whole hasn't embraced it yet, where I think cycling, um, there's such few aspects that are going to make you a way better cyclist. You know, like you're spinning pedals. There's not a whole lot of technique. Um, so fueling is kind of the one difference you can you can make in your racing so it's it's a huge deal in cycling or in skiing it's not quite there and it's i push it on a lot of guys and, and girls to fuel as you know way more than what they're doing and, and people really do look at me like i'm crazy and you know obviously i'm a little crazy but with this stuff i'm definitely not crazy this is like proof in the pudding there's tons of data on it um all the best endurance athletes right now are there's no secrets. You know, everybody kind of knows what everybody's doing. Like for Leadville, I'm 82 kilos. So I'm definitely on the heavier side, which in skiing isn't super heavy. Um, but in cycling I was doing, I did about 150 grams of carbs an hour for Leadville. Um, and I was also doing about eight grams of carbohydrates per, um, kilo I weigh Thursday and Friday leading up to it. So I was doing about, I think that comes out to be about 650 grams of carbohydrates, um, per day. And that's just eating, um, just really making sure your glycogen stores are up. And obviously you don't need to do that if you're going to, you know, go to a 5k or a 10k, but for the Berkey, um, it's definitely not a bad idea. Um, or for, you know, the Vasilopet or any of the big races, it'd be a good, good strategy for sure. But I think in skiing, yeah, the, the nutrition, it's, it's very easy to do and it's just not taken advantage of even at the highest level. Um, I was just out at soldier hollow today. And, uh, of course me being, uh, a coach, I was, I was watching how often people were grabbing their drink belts and, and drinking and how often they were eating. And it was like pretty much, I was out there for maybe two hours and pretty much nobody, there's a couple guys that ate, I saw, but pretty much nobody was eating anything. And then they really didn't drink much. Um, and even on your easy days, you're still burning glycogen, even though, um, you know, we kind of, we call fat burning. It's just cause you're, you know, mostly burning fat, you're still burning glycogen. So yeah, it's just, it's, it's just one of those things. It's, it's the one missing link I see. And I think the Europeans, I really do. I, I don't know this for a fact. I've never talked to any of them, but I, I have a hard time thinking that 
all the Euro cyclists are doing this and none of the Euro skiers are doing, you know, the high carb, uh, training fad, mm-hmm. but the U S for sure is missing the mark. And that's biathlon. That's cross country skiing. Like they they are not fueling nearly enough. And it's, yeah, it's, it's just free speed. Like, of course you can still go do a three hour ski on water in, in no calories. Like if you're fit, it's not that big of a deal, but, um, you could probably do it better and you could probably be better the next day and the next day and the next day. Um, if you just took down, you know, a little bit of, of food and hydration mix during your workouts. Um, and that's not to say people aren't doing stuff. It's definitely, you know, people are definitely taking gels or, uh, drink mix. I it's, it's not to say nobody is, but I just think across the board, it's a very, um, you know, missed target as far as high performing or high performance, uh, endurance sports. It's, it's like you were saying with, with Jan in the triathlon. Yeah. He's racing way longer, but with that being said, he's not going as intense. Like he's not burning as much glycogen as the cross country skier is per mm-hmm. minute. You know, skiers are probably on the highest end of glycogen burning athletes. And so your body can only hold most people, your body can only hold about 500 grams of, of carbohydrates or glycogen in your muscles. So, you know, it's, if you're not taking in huge amount of carbohydrates before that workout and huge amount of carbohydrates during that workout, um, you're probably ending most workouts on, on E, which does not set you up very well for the next day or the next week. Mm-hmm. So just to be clear, you're at uh, soldier hollow today and the U S ski team there has their fall camp. Uh, U S biathlon is there, uh, with the fall camp. So, you were there uh, observing literally the best skiers we have in the country, correct? Yeah, yeah. And obviously, like, I don't know what all of them are eating before. I have no idea. But I was just, like, as a coach on the sidelines looking. And, like, very few people were grabbing their water belts and very few people were eating across the board. Um, And it's, you know, it's not to say that's just one day in one small instance. So I could be completely off the mark, but just from what I saw today, I was like, man, like this is crazy. You know, even on easy bike rides, like the best cyclists in the world are taking down, you know, 50 to 60 grams of carbohydrates an hour. So, um, you know, if skiers are out there for two hours, even if they're going easy, um, you know, they're definitely burning more glycogen than the best cyclists are per, mm-hmm. per minute. Mm-hmm. So speaking of, uh, Paul Schilmer, one of your former teammates, um, you skied in a or for a program in college that uh, may not come to mind as a big name ski program. You mentioned that you went to Saint Scholastica, um, but while you guys were there, you and Paul and uh, the boys, uh, one of your other teammates actually won the American Berkebiner in two thousand and twelve. Tell me about that. Yeah, we had the infamous uh, Joe Dubay winning the the Berkebiner in. Chris Parr's bib um, <laughs> kind of turned the uh, Master Blaster world upside down. And uh, yeah, it was, looking back, it was absolutely hilarious that it happened the way it did. And, uh, you know, we were just kids with uh, very few brain cells in our brains. But, um, yeah, it was pretty incredible. Joe Dubay was a phenomenal – anybody who, who skied at a high level in the U.S. in, uh, like, 2007 to 2010 – probably knows Joe's name. He was really good junior skier, went over to Finland, uh, won the Finnish national 30 K as a 19 or 18 year old. And, um, yeah, phenomenal skier got, got into, um, some rough stuff in his early 
20s and then uh, kind of popped back into the ski world when he came to Sklaska and really pulled that race out of his butt, man. Like, he was super mediocre all year. I don't think he'd skied for, like, two years maybe. But, um, man, he pulled that out, and he ended up beating uh, in a sprint finish um, Vagard Olvang, which I'll never forget that. And, obviously, Vagard's like <laughs> – I don't know if I'm pronouncing his name right, but he was, he was obviously well out of his prime of his career, but you know, he's still a medalist. Dave Chamberlain, who's, you know, a legend of, of ski racing. He was in there and he's fast. And so for Joe to out sprint, those guys was, was pretty iconic. And then, um, you know, come to find out Joe was in the wrong bib. (laughs) It was a, it was a pretty big ordeal at the time. But like I said, it was, uh, yeah, it was just, we were just kind of kids being kids. Mm Mm-hmm. Well, and the story doesn't stop there, because a prominent broadcaster on NBC or NBCSN, you see him all over the place, uh, Chad Salmo was your coach, and was actually calling the race at the time. Is that right? Yeah, yeah, and Joe has a pretty distinct double pull, Uh so like you know, you know, like most skiers, you know who they are, like you could throw the silhouette on on the ground, and you kind of know how somebody skis when you watch them enough, and so... Joe was coming down the finish line stretch at the Berkey and Chad, Chad knew it wasn't Chris Parr, but he had to announce that it was Chris Parr because that's what was showing up on timing. And so I'm sure it, Chad's perspective on this is probably absolutely hilarious. Uh, but he got a ton of hate mail too for it. Like it was the Scholastica program in general. We, uh, yeah, we did not have a, a, a good name after that race, but it soon went away and, um, people forgot about it. To, well, some people, but, um, yeah, it was, it was, I mean, looking back, that was probably the greatest day of any ski race I had ever done just because, um, you know, Joe, Joe had such, he, he had some really tough times in his life leading up to that. And, um, for him to kind of crawl out of his hole and win the Berkey and, and, you know, back up a little Joe and I, we, we skied in the same conference in high school. And so, you know, I knew Joe as this freak of nature. He would, I would be like second or third place in a 5k and, you know, Joe would beat me by like four minutes. <laughs> so, so to me, Joe was kind of this like freak of nature, uh, not really a human, more of a robot guy. And so, um, you know, I always looked up to him and then to have him come out and win the Berkey, you know, two years, no skiing and, and going through a bunch of stuff in his life. It was, it was kind of the most iconic thing that's happened in my life as far as, you know, being a part of, of somebody's awesome Berkey story. Mm-hmm. Well, so one more question on that. You know, you have a Berkey winner at Scholastica, um, super prominent commentator uh, in Chad, uh, Olympian and, you know, World Cup athlete, World Cup top 10 biathlete and Paul Schomer, and then yourself, uh, I forget, two or three-time national champion, top 20 Leadville guy on your first race, there uh, and then starting two mountain bike world cups i mean incredibly incredibly diverse and impressive performances um from a relatively small program well we and the crazy part is we have more we have kellen dunphy on the speed skating team um he was my class at Glasgow, so he's a he's going for the next olympics for speed skating mm-hmm. um, tra- trains in salt lake um we have like as far as coaching goes reitler hogger who coaches i think like the development team or some, some sort of us he's part of the us ski coaching out of bend um jeremy hecker 
high-level ski coach Jake Morgan. He coached the Endurance United uh, St. Paul, Minnesota group for quite a few years. Um, Liz um, is now the Endurance United um, coach. I mean, there's a lot of Scholastica people that went on to either compete at a high level or coach at a high level. And, you know, I'm super proud of that. And I think I don't really know what it was about Scholastica at that time. Um, as you know, every, you know, five, six years, cultures change and stuff shifts. Um, not to say it's worse now than it was, but we definitely had something special. Like I, I vividly remember, um, training with my teammates and just knowing that we were all, you know, really putting our best foot forward almost every day. And, you know, that doesn't just mean we become good athletes. It's like, it spreads across everything. We have tons of high level, you know, professionals as well in the business world and, and, you know, just doing great things across the board. Um, and so, yeah, there was definitely something special there because it's, it's pretty crazy how many sports at a high level that the, the team I was on, um, are competing in to this day, which, you know, I graduated 10 years ago now. Given all that, do you think Scholastica gets the respect that it deserves? Um, probably in the ski world. Cause we were, there were really good skiers at Scholastica, but as a whole, it wasn't deep. Like it wasn't a deep ski team. It's not like you could go the top six guys or girls were, were phenomenal um, in the sense of like NCAA All-Americans, like an NMU or a Utah school. Um, but our top guys and girls were always very, very competitive. Um, and I think, the, I think the reason that it became what it is now with, with all of us is Chad took a bunch of you know, kids that weren't good enough to make the NMU team or to make the University of Utah or, or the big schools and really developed us the proper way. Um, and again, not to say these schools didn't develop them the proper way, but most of the kids coming in were damn good. Like they didn't really have to do a ton of development to make them good. They were already good, like especially NMU. Like you get a lot of, like Stan did a phenomenal job um, with all those athletes, but a lot of those athletes coming in were already really good where we were, we were kind of, like I said, the, the best of the worst or the worst of the best, whichever way you want to look at it. And, mm-hmm. uh, so we were, you know, we, we kind of had our backs to the wall, nothing to lose. And Chad was very good, at, uh, at developing, um, athletes that were at our level. I mean, that's kind of his specialty is, is making, you know, uh, fairly good endurance athletes have, longevity in their whether they're you know their athletes are just enjoying the sport longevity wise so it was yeah it's it's really cool to look back i always tell people like it's it's almost insane that that many people came from that tiny school because i think her graduating class was only like 450 or something so Mm -hmm. it it was a really small school Mm -hmm. um so you've had a pretty remarkable trajectory in the last few years you made it to the highest level of mountain biking after three or four years of racing obviously had a lot of uh super solid results uh skiing motocross but you know there's always improvements to be made um i think any good athlete is always looking at boy you know if i knew then what i know now so if you had to do it all over again knowing what you know now what would you do differently oh where do i start uh no i <laughs> I'm happy everything happened the way it did for sure. Like I I wouldn't really change a whole lot as far as I I think. um, And and I truly do believe this and it's not to say, 
you can't be Deion Sanders and be a great coach because he obviously is, but most of the best athletes don't make the best coaches. And I think another, you know, standout in that is like an Andy Newell, like Andy Newell, phenomenal athlete, phenomenal coach. But I think being, you know, fairly mediocre, um, caused me to learn a lot more. Like it wasn't nothing really, nothing really came easy in the sense of I was always trying to play catch up because I didn't start, you know, at a certain, certain age, or I didn't go through the ranks at a certain time or anything like that. So I think that was like, you know, the big thing for me is just being able to learn. But if I could go back, like the big things, um, especially as a skier, there's about a million things I would change. But, um, again, I would go back and really focus on my technique. Um, I think that was something that I could, I could still be better at. I was, I was your typical skier where I was very volume obsessed um, and I didn't, you know, cross my T's and dot my I's on a lot of days when I should have. And mm-hmm. it's, it's really nobody's fault. It was just me wanting to try to ski with the best guys instead of maybe just taking it back a couple notches and, and skiing at a, at a better rate. And then also too, like, I think like I was telling, or like we were just talking about with nutrition, um, man, if I knew what I knew now on so many, I mean, I remember having like oatmeal like 30 minutes before a race you know and just stuff that like you just can't possibly digest oatmeal in 30 minutes so just knowing a little bit more I don't think it would have changed dramatically results but I think I would have had more consistent races for sure Mm -hmm. what do you miss the most about ski racing oh um nothing (laughs) no no I I it's such a unique sport. Like I was saying before, cause you just have to be good at so many things. And I missed the, every season there's like a different goal. And I really do miss that. Like in the spring, it was always strength was the big goal in the summer, you know, putting in big volume in the, in the fall, you get fast in the winter you race. And it, I felt like it was almost like four different sports every year. Mm-hmm. Um, and I really enjoy that. We're cycling. I love to bike, but man, it's, <laughs> the monotony of it is unbelievable. Uh, like it's, it's pretty next level coming from the ski world, you know, doing 650, 700 hours a year, just biking. Um, it's a, it's a big difference between being able to split it up between a bunch of sports. So I, I really enjoy being efficient running. Like that's something I miss a lot. And then being efficient. I loved being efficient roller skiing. Mm-hmm. Like once I was efficient in the fall, to me, that was like the greatest feeling because you could kind of you know, V2 really far up a hill or, you know, just the little things I miss, but, um, I'll be back. I think once I'm done, uh, I'm trying to be a hack at, at biking. I'll be back ski racing and probably be full on master blaster. Oh, you gonna take a Berkey start. Yeah. I mean, eventually I don't, I don't know when this will be, but I, I would really like to, you know, ski race at some point and, and enjoy it again, just because, um, yeah, kind of. Whenever I ski now, it's it's definitely my my happy place. Even though I really love mountain biking, uh, there's just something about you know perfect corduroy skiing that's makes it really fun. I know, right? So here here's the question that everyone's dying to hear the answer to: Are they gonna let you back in the Berkey? Like I again, this is the, the rumor confirmed. The rumor is that you guys actually got banned from the race. Is that true? Yeah, I got banned, but I think I was only banned for like two years, and I know I paid my fine because I raced it again. I raced it in uh, 20 – well, I raced it in 2014 and uh, Classic and then 2015. And now 2015, 
was my last, yeah, the last race I did was the Berkey in 2015. But, um, yeah, in 2014, actually, Chris Parr and I, Glasgow skier, we were in the sprint finish for the classic win. And uh, I was telling him how hilarious it'd be if he would have won just because Joe won in his bib, you know, three three years prior, two years prior, whatever it was. So, yeah, no, we, we were definitely back in. So hopefully hopefully so that, they don't hold too big of a grudge. That's water under the bridge, at least as far as you're concerned. Yeah. Right. We'll, we'll see how they feel about that because they're, they're notoriously finicky about that. Um, so one other thing, and then I'll let you go, is you and I talked a lot when we were down in West Virginia about the atmosphere at Snowshoe, and you were telling me the same about uh, St. Anne, just how electric it was. The course was lined with fans. Um, neither venue, I mean, the West Virginia venue was, geez, four hours from the nearest, at least big city. Um, you know, uh, St. Anne, sort of the same. Quebec City, I guess, isn't too far, but Montreal's a good four hours. Um, and so there's certainly parallels to there to Nordic skiing. Um, a little bit of a niche sport. Sometimes the venues are a little bit remote. But here's two excellent examples of um, incredible success stories. So if you could make one change to the Nordic World Cup circuit to improve not only attendance, but just help grow the overall fan base, um, based on everything you've seen in motocross, which is obviously even bigger, um, some slightly different uh, factors at work there. But I think, I think the analogy between mountain biking and Nordic skiing is pretty fair. So sort of combining everything you've seen firsthand from World Cup on biathlon, Nordic, or excuse me, cross-country, and then compare that with cross-country mountain bike and motocross, what would you do to improve just the vibe, attendance, viewership, overall interest in World Cup Nordic skiing? Yeah, if I was king for a day, yeah, I definitely, I think there's some things that can make it more popular, or at least more appealing, I think just for the kids. Like, I think if you can make it appealing to the youth, it just naturally will grow. Um, I think biathlon has it right in a lot of ways. I think, you know, if you watch mass start biathlon races, um, well, any biathlon races, but especially mass start, like the attendance is amazing and the crowd is just unbelievable. Um, so I think biathlon does it really right. Skiing, I think the biggest thing is they're just stuck in the past with a lot of things. Like, I don't think a lot of these courses are spectator friendly. I think some of them are for sure, but I think having shorter laps would, would help a lot just so, you know, the, the eighth grade kids standing next to the trail can see their favorite racer go by 10 times instead of twice. Um, and I just think like the individual start aspect, like obviously there's tons of heritage in it and it's as a skier, I love doing individual starts cause it was really just you versus you. But as a, as a spectator, um, you know, those, I feel like that's kind of a, a hard thing to watch on TV. Like I can't watch the whole race as much as I love skiing. Um, so those are like two big things, but I would love to see the cross country ski world take on, I think the mountain bike, like you said, the world cup is really adapted to the times and you know, the courses never used to be this gnarly, um, like 15 years ago. And I think part of that was equipment, but I think more of that was just, it wasn't popular to, to go downhill fast or anything like that. And so now they're making the courses, you know, the downhills are more technical, it's shorter laps. You can see each rider, you know, maybe three, four times a lap 
um, standing in one spot. And I think that really gets people interested. And, and, and also the more laps you do, the course deteriorates, which it's the same in skiing. Um, and I think that's why sprint racing has such a high success rate of viewership in cross country skiing. It's just because, you know, it's action packed, it's short, it's, it's really what people want to watch, um, verse, you know, like say a individual, individual start, you know, 20, 30, 50 K, whatever it is. Um, I feel like those days are kind of dead. So I, yeah, I think of the ski world, you know, whether it's a little more technical downhills, uh, not to say they're easy now. I mean, I know how, how difficult those courses are well i don't know but i can only imagine how difficult those courses are because the world-class skiers are making them look hard but um yeah just making stuff just a little more you know viewer friendly and, and maybe adding a bit of spice in it to to throw people off their game so you don't have you know one guy winning 85 95 percent of the races mm-hmm. yeah yeah, I, I, you know, I, I hear that a lot, you know, especially coaching, you know, a lot of the younger guys, uh, keeping it exciting, keeping it fun, you know, figuring out a way to keep the history and, like you said, the heritage, but also tying in, you know, a little bit more of a skill and action component certainly does a lot for um, spectator appeal, that's for sure. Um, yeah, but yeah, I, I don't get me wrong, I'm still a full, full ski nerd at its, at its, you know, at my heart. So I, I, I don't mind the, the uh, monotony of watching, um, you know, what it is now. It's mm-hmm. just to really attract that next generation. Um, th- I think there's, you know, quite a few things that could get kids excited and just coaching at LNR, um, the, the bit I did, I would always take the kids just because it's the only thing I could get them to do to actually enjoy the ski day. Mm-hmm. We would just build jumps at the bottom of the hills. That was literally our day. We'd build jumps, take our poles off, ski up the hill, hit the jump, then, you know, crash, do it again, do it again. And it's pretty good training because you got to ski up the hill every lap. Uh, and they were stoked every day to do it. So for me, I just look at stuff like that. And it's like, you know, what if we added a, maybe not a jump section, but like, you know, some mogul type obstacles or a, a small little drop in the, on mm-hmm. the world top. And just like you said, just to mix it up and, and make people you know, be on their toes a little more on the downhills without being super dangerous, I think would be a cool, cool ad. Right, right. So you've been in the game for a while now, and you mentioned monotony, and then you mentioned it, referenced it a few minutes ago as well. How much gas do you have in the tank? Like, what's left for you? You know, you've accomplished a lot between the, what's it, the Lifetime Series Grand Prix, that's, you know, strong results in Leadville, got a couple national champs, got a couple World Cup starts. Um, you see yourself racing mountain bikes. Well, how much longer do you see yourself racing mountain bikes? And then I'm curious, you mentioned a little bit about a possible return to skiing too. So what are the next, oh, I don't know, two to five years have for you? Yeah, I, I still want to bike race. Um, as you know, like uh, I'm a little uh, opti- what do I say? Uh, delusionally optimistic. Um, Hope doping. So I still... Yes, I still feel like I can be. I'm going to use that all the time now. Yeah, I, I, yeah, I definitely hope dope with my own self, but um, I think I think I could still be better at distance racing. So I really want to dive in a little more uh, longer distance mountain bike racing, um, XC stuff. I don't want to say I'm done with it by any means, but I'm definitely not chasing that. You know, once I got the World Cup start, that was kind of the the best I'll be. Um, but yeah, I, I still see myself. It's so hard to 
I mean, I understand why <laughs> I have athletes myself that, you know, from the outside looking in, people are always like, oh, why don't they just quit? They're not what they used to be. You know, I have, I have one athlete, an example, who's a two-time world champion, incredible athlete. He, he's not quite where he used to be, but he loves it still. And he loves competing, and he, you know, the whole nine. And that's kind of how I feel. Like, I definitely could be better if I, um, you know, didn't own a company and, you know, have a job and, and could do whatever I wanted. But I feel like I can still be better um, at so many things. So I, I just keep, keep doing it cause I love it. It's fun. My wife supports it. And, um, it's, yeah, there's, it's a never ending. I feel like endurance sports are a never ending, uh, puzzle to, to getting better. So there's always something. And, you know, eventually once I move back to park city full time, I'll, um, I'll start skiing more just because I don't want to, I don't want to have to bike in the winter, especially stationary bike. <laughs> I, I feel that. All right, last question. Since Nordic Insights is a Nordic skiing-focused publication, I'd be remiss if I didn't conclude by asking about what many informed observers consider to be one of the most hotly contested races, perhaps ever, in ski racing. And I think you know what I'm talking about already. It's the ski athlon. You went up against a 50-year-old Minnesota farmer, Farmer Phil, if I'm not mistaken. Oh yeah, oh yeah. Can you uh, can you give us the race recap of that that uh, that outing? Yeah, we were. I don't know how long the race was. It was probably thirty k or something like that, and it was just a, a smaller race in uh, Minnesota. And uh, me and my teammate Ryan Wright, we were we were pretty arrogant that we were going to go one two, and um, at the halfway mark, we were like taking our sweet time, just very very arrogant. There's a video somewhere on YouTube, um, but please don't watch it. And, uh, yeah, Farmer Phil, at the time, I don't know how old Phil was at the time, but he was probably mid to late 40s, and um, with, like, 3K to go, catches us, and we're completely blown up. Um, no, no fuel left in the tank. Like, we were really, really smoked. And catches us, outsprints us. And this is like, you know, we were in our prime, so to speak, of our college years racing. And this was just just a guy. Like this wasn't, you know, Phil was a phenomenal athlete, phenomenal skier, but it's not like, you know, he he worked a job and it's it's not like all he did was ski train. Well, and uh, he was he was straight up a farmer who Yeah, yeah. Was, oh yeah. Skied he's like, kind of a Midwest yeah, he's kind of a Midwest legend. He's yeah, he, he's I mean he was I shouldn't discount. He was a super legit skier. But with that being said, we were in our early 20s. He was in his late 40s. There was 0% chance on paper he was going to beat us, and he kicked our ass. And it was, like, looking back, it was epic. I mean, his and the funniest part is his sprint finish. He was moving fast. We were definitely not moving fast, but we were trying to move fast. Like, our turnover was really fast. And he was, like, classic old man turnover, really slow open field. And right. just went straight past us like we were tied to a tree. <laughs> so oh. yeah, that was that was a great that was a great race. That was so it was like that was kind of a legendary thing in itself um, between all the people that live up in Duluth. Just because Skinny Ski put it on on their YouTube channel, and it was like this thing where everybody could watch it. People were just bashing us. They didn't even know us, you know, and they're like, "What losers!" and like so cocky it's like they were they were 100 percent right 
Oh, it, it is absolutely one of the, the best uh, Nordic skiing stories out there, for sure. Well, Mr. Wessling, I cannot thank you enough. Um, you know, what you accomplished uh, in the last two World Cups was absolutely remarkable. Um, I'm psyched to have your teammates, Carter and Evan, uh, on the podcast because their perspective is, you know, pretty similar, but also has a lot of uh, kind of very unique qualities to it. Um, you know, kind of how they bounced around from different sports and the fact that you guys all ended up at the very top level in a very competitive sport too. You know, this isn't modern pentathlon where you got to beat five guys. You know, this is, this, is, this is the real deal. So to see all of you guys get to that level in, you know, all things considered a relatively short period of time and, and representing the United States of America, you know, just with such class and dignity and enthusiasm it, it you know i was incredibly proud to be out there and to you know be your teammate from skiing and your friend from everything else uh, what you did was a true testament for not only skiing and mountain biking but just kind of like you mentioned at the at the beginning of the of the episode uh persistence and um perseverance and so there's just so many great subplots of the storyline so I, I can't thank you enough for uh taking time to speak with us and um we'll we'll, uh, we'll see you out there oh what time is it who woke me up